Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. So whether you're online or you're here in person, my name is Jed. It's a privilege to get to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And perhaps you're new here or you've been a part of this church family for a long time. And regardless of where you are on that spectrum, we just want to say thank you for joining us. And we're grateful that you'd spend the portion of your weekend here with us. As Britt said, we're continuing in a series where we're studying through the Gospel of Mark, and we began right after Christmas, and it's going to take us all the way up to Easter Sunday. And in order to keep with that timeline, there have been weeks here where Britt and I have had to cover large sections of Scripture, and today it's one of those days. Okay, I've got, let's see, four pages in my Bible to cover. And so to honor your time and to also honor the scriptures, I'd encourage you to lean in. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Mark chapter 9, verse 30. We've got Bibles in the back. You can open up your, your BibleGateway.com bit on your phone, and I'll allow you to travel through with us. But before we get to Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 10, 52, I'd like to ask you about the last time someone said something to you that, that took you off guard just a little bit. You know, maybe it was unsolicited advice. You didn't ask for it, they gave it to you anyways. Maybe it was advice you did ask for, but it wasn't advice that you wanted to hear. Maybe someone was trying to give you feedback that was uninspiringly critical of you, and so you didn't receive it in that way. Or maybe it was just something that someone said that threw you a little bit off. Now, in the last several weeks, my boys have been challenging my character, it seems, because all three of them have had quotations that have really struck with me. One of them, several weeks ago, asked this question, totally unsolicited. I don't remember where we were. We were probably just in the kitchen making eggs for breakfast. And he said, hey, Daddy, didn't you used to be jacked? And I thought, okay, we're doing that. Seriously. And then another point in time, another one of the three boys came up to me, totally unsolicited, and said, hey, Daddy, um, why is the chin, like the beard part, that chin part, all turning white? And I said, because of the church. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and then another one uh, came up to me not too long ago, and he said, um, hey, Daddy, when are we going to work out again? Um, I feel like you're always too busy with work. And we all have these things that people have said to us that stop us in our tracks. And when we study through Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 10, 52, we will find this section of Scripture where Jesus is saying things to his disciples and to the crowd that should cause them, rightly so, to kind of stop in their tracks. 
Now, oftentimes when we think about the hard sayings of Jesus, perhaps we project onto the scriptures our own experiences where people have said things to us in a really, really hurtful, harsh way. However, when we look at the target text this morning, all of those pastors, I'd like you to hear some of the echoings of my little boys, probably that last one, where there's something to be said that we truly ought to sit with and settle with, and it might be hard for us to hear, but it's important for us to hear it. So here's the path for today. Really quickly, we're going to recap where Britt brought us last week. This is the second part of a two-part message where we're talking about the cost of discipleship. And then we're going to walk through the 10 or so narratives, these pericopes in Mark's gospel, and just take some highlights from all of them. And then lastly, we'll talk about a way that hopefully you and I can respond to what we're seeing in the scripture. So let's go back to where Britt brought us last week. One of the first things that we talked about was this confession that we find in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus and the disciples are traveling along the road, and he's asking them who people say who he is. They say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and he says, but who do you say I am? And in Mark's version of this, Peter steps up boldly, and he says, you are the Christ, or you are the Messiah. In other words, you are the person whom God has decided that the culmination of all of time would find itself. The restoration of the kingdom of Israel would happen because of who you are. You are that person. As the kids would say, you are him. Okay? And after Peter declares these words, Jesus decides that it's the time for him to reveal something that he hasn't spoken to them about at all. It is the, the first of three foretellings of what he is about to encounter as he heads toward Jerusalem. We see it where he says that he's going to be delivered into men and that the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, basically the religious elite, are going to betray him so that he is put to death. But on the third day, he will rise. And perhaps you remember what Peter decided to do after that scene. He takes Jesus aside. Maybe he feels like he's got a close enough relationship with him where he can say to his face, rebuking him, that there's no way, Jesus, that that is what is going to happen. Do you remember that? And Jesus says to him just as quickly, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, you tempter. Get behind me, evil one. He says to him that his mind isn't concerned with the divine things, but on human things. And so that's where we were the week before. And in this long final section of Mark's gospel before Jesus is in Jerusalem, we're finding that these disciples who have traveled with Jesus for almost three years up until this point are starting to become apprehensive about what he has shared. And you'll notice something really, really interesting in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, after Jesus rebukes Peter back. It says that he, Jesus, called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And it doesn't seem like a big deal, but 
that, let's see, one, two, three, four, fifth word there, with, is incredibly important here. He called the crowd with his disciples. You see, up until this point in Mark's gospel, there's a strong delineation between the crowd and the disciples. Jesus intentionally takes his disciples separately from the crowd. We're at this critical juncture, he actually invites the crowd to come alongside his disciples, and he issues an invitation that's as bold as it gets. Are you willing to follow me to the very end? This isn't just reserved for those disciples. It's now opened up to the entire crowd. And there's a very strong reason for this. The reason is because the disciples have clearly been missing it. So here's your first fill in the blank. Length of discipleship does not guarantee strength of understanding. Again, the disciples had traveled with Jesus for almost three years. They'd spent intimate time with him. And after he reveals his ultimate purpose, that he's going to be sacrificing himself fully, not establishing himself with security and power the way that they would want the Messiah to do it, their leader, Peter, decides that he's going to rebuke him. And so Jesus here is, is showing us that just because you've spent X amount of years with him, it doesn't mean that you or I or in the narratives they understand or want to accept what Jesus is saying. And so there are just a, a few things for us to consider at this point in time. Maybe you're here this morning and you're brand new to this deal. And perhaps you're intimidated because you're hearing these words or phrases or the content of the scripture feels like something that's foreign to you. And you're thinking, well, what do I have to gain or benefit when I don't have the right information? Well, let's just remind you that it's okay. You're in a safe, good place because just because someone's been with Jesus or in a relationship for a long time, it doesn't necessarily mean that they or we have the answer. And so on the other end of that expression, for those of us that have been in relationship with Jesus for a long, long time, this can cause us to pause and hear or consider the ways in our lives that we have these thoughts, or these, these things that we hold dearly that perhaps aren't aligned with what he has for us. So in these upcoming sections of Mark, we're going to take that idea that the length of discipleship doesn't necessarily correlate to strength of understanding. Let me just show you some places where that's here. Are you okay with that? So going to Mark chapter 9, immediately in verse 32, after part of what Julie read earlier, where Jesus gives the second foretelling of what's going to happen to him, it says, they did not understand what he is saying and were afraid to ask him. And then a few short verses later, they're inside of a home, and Jesus is teaching them again, and he asked them what they were arguing about along the way, right? He heard them arguing about who was the greatest, and in verse 34 it says, but they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Two instances where even though they've been with Jesus for a long time, it's not like their behavior is matching up to his expectations of them. And then he says, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant 
of all. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like if we really wanted to, we could spend our lifetime trying to figure that out. Anyone here feel like they've got that nailed down, that they're really great at that? You know, it's so interesting, and this isn't to, to harp on uh, terminology like this. In fact, my undergrad alma mater, Hope International University, our mission statement was creating servant leaders, right, who are compelled to change the world for Christ, something like that. And it's so fascinating to me that we would even have to dilute some of this idea of being a servant or slave for all and attach it to some of our ambitiousness, right? We're not so comfortable with being servants or slaves, but it sounds a little bit better to be servant leaders, right? To be slave leaders. Because it it seems like affixing that servanthood to something that we really want might be a little bit more digestible. And again, it's not to say that leadership isn't important, but let's just rest a little bit with these words. Whoever wants to be first or the greatest must be last and servant of all. I mean, that's pretty uncomfortable. Let's keep moving in the text. Jesus takes a little child And he says, whoever welcomes one of these in my name welcomes me and the one who sent me. And just save that because we're going to see several verses later how the disciples potentially missed it. So in verse 38, instead, we have John, the arguably youngest disciple, speak up after this demonstration. He says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons or driving out demons in your name. And we told him to stop because he was not one of us. And if you're reading the NIV translation, you'll see it written in that way. But let me show you uh, what other translations like the NRSV or the ESV, which try and take a little bit closer reading to the original language, say. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following who? Us. Whoa. Whoa. It wasn't about because he wasn't one of us. The original language indicates that these disciples had replaced themselves subtly, even with Jesus' own leading. Their concern with the others was that they weren't following them. Wouldn't it have been so much more fitting if the disciples said, Hey, Jesus, uh, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following you? The us there... It indicates something. We see it, don't we? Let's continue to move. Verse 42. If any of you puts a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Did I hear uncomfortable laughter in the room? It's pretty wild, right? To think about this agricultural tool that the oxen or the donkeys would have used to crush grain, take that big old hunk of rock. If you're the cause for someone's stumbling, if you're the cause for an obstacle for someone to believe in me, and why don't you just affix that around your neck and jump off into the ocean? Yeah, there's some laughter here, but man, how uncomfortable. How uncomfortable for Jesus to elevate the level of responsibility to these disciples, to those who are listening about whether or not they would stand in the way or be a stumbling or tripping block. 
And perhaps one of the ways that we can interpret this is if the disciples have missed that Jesus is not out to establish an earthly kingdom the way that they expect them to, if the disciples do not get on the same page with Jesus about his intent and his purpose, they're going to cause people to stumble. Because if they're close companions to Jesus and they are misunderstanding his purpose and what he's out to do, well, wouldn't they be a reason for many others around them to not get it either? So there are lots of ways that commentators deal with this next part because Jesus seems to up the ante a little bit more. Some of our par- parallels in Matthew's gospel, where he talks about the eye and the foot or, or the hand. You, you see here that, that Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, what does he say? Chop it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It's better for you to enter into life of the kingdom of heaven than to enter into hell dismembered, disfigured. That's pretty intense, isn't it? It's also a reminder to us that it's irresponsible to go around saying that we just read the Bible literally. Because if that were truly what we did, I'm pretty sure this room would be filled of limbless people. (laughs) You wouldn't be seeing what's happening here, and it'd be a really funny scene to imagine how we all arrived at church this morning if you read the Bible literally. There isn't time to go into the depths of this section, but one of the things that's really interesting here is that Jesus also might be referring to the fact that in their society, because kids were property, that perhaps there were levels of abuse toward children of a certain nature that really deserved the worst of punishment. Okay, and we don't have to go into so much of that today, but, but part of maybe why that might be the case is because in the original language, when we have the word that's translated to hell here, it's Gehenna. And Gehenna was this valley on the southwest side of Jerusalem where at that time they did burn their trash. There was fire perpetually. But in the Old Testament, this place was known as the Valley of Hinnom. And in the Valley of Hinnom, there were individuals who created these high places where they would sacrifice children to the gods of Molech and Baal. In other words, in the consciousness of these hearers, when they heard Gehenna, they thought about the worst, the worst of atrocities, children being sacrificed in the fire. And so it is possible that as Jesus is speaking to these disciples and he is alluding to terrible abuse of children, that he would say, if there's a stumbling block placed in front of these little ones, what's deserving of that is the very worst of places in the world. You guys okay to keep moving? (laughs) Mark chapter 10. And we're moving on. And in verse 2 of Mark chapter 10, Jesus had just been teaching, as was his custom, and some Pharisees came in to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And then Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? Now, it's important here to recognize that Jesus didn't come to a place and say, okay, our subject matter for this morning is let's talk about divorce and adultery. 
Okay, that's, that's not what happened. And, you know, it's also wild to think that 20, 30, 40 years ago, it would have been really easy to take this passage of Scripture and for a large section of the population to, to feel like they couldn't step into a church building, perhaps, because of a failed marriage or relationship. And so, again, it's noteworthy to remember that Jesus isn't sitting down saying, all right, let's, let's talk about this today. And there really wouldn't have been a need for Jesus to do that because two or so years before that, he included this topic of adultery at length in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, right? Or in Luke's Gospel, the Sermon on the Plain. It would have been very common for Jesus in talking about the values of the kingdom of God to include these topics that society would have seen very differently. But I would have you remember that when Jesus introduces this topic of adultery all those years ago, he isn't just talking about people who have taken part in sexual sin in a way that was evident. Remember, he said, anyone who looks at another lustfully has committed adultery. In other words, again, there's not a person in this room who should have eyes still remaining. It's just, that's just what it is. And so part of what we ought to see here, the wildness of this section, is the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus because when they ask him if it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife, well, according to their scriptures, the simple answer should be, well, yeah, that's what the scriptures say. In a modern way, yeah, that's what the Bible says. But Jesus knows that if he just answers it that Quickly, then it seems like he's affirming the common practice that had developed where men could, in Jewish law, divorce their wives for whatever reason. Right? We have historical accountings of men being able to say, I want to divorce my wife because I'm not pleased with this or that. And so they could provide a certificate of divorce. And be just fine then. So Jesus, again, if he says, yes, that's what the scriptures say, the Pharisees can say, well, ha, do you really care? Do you really care? And so what does Jesus do that's brilliant? He asks about what the scriptures say. What did Moses say to you? Right? He, he responds to their question with a question, and so they have to say, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her, and it should have been the end of the story, right? But then Jesus, something that's beautiful and brilliant, he responds to their picking of a scripture with, with scripture. And that sounds really weird because we hear oftentimes, well, well, how do we use the Bible? How do we read the Bible? How do we respond to Scripture? When really, we know that it's impossible for us at any point in time to just take all this and absorb it and to speak it out in one way. In other words, when we read our Scripture, there are going to be ways that we pluck out parts, right? It's impossible not to pluck out parts. It's impossible not to be lenient towards one way or another way. And so Jesus here in this moment is demonstrating that the scripture, the parts of scripture that we choose to emphasize truly say something about the condition of our hearts. 
And so look at what he decides to say. It was because of the hardness of your heart that Moses gave these commands. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined in his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And you hear that and you say, exactly, that's so straightforward. But remember what Jesus is doing here. He's providing them a sense that if you're going to take Scripture to make yourself feel better than another person, let me remind you God's intent. Let me remind you that no person on this planet that you look up to is probably doing it the way entirely that God has designed it. And you're saying, well, what does that mean, Jed? Well, if you look at verse 10, it says, Then in the house the disciples asked him about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And you think, well, that sounds pretty straightforward, except at their point in history, only men were allowed to give the certificate of divorce. And so when Jesus includes this Roman way, not this Jewish way, but this Roman way of women being able to provide the certificate of divorce, it further seems to complicate in the disciples' minds how power is used. And that really is the issue that is at hand. How do we use power? If I could just divorce a woman because I don't like her the way that she is, is that a model of sacrificial love and care? And another thing for these first century Jewish hearers is when Jesus goes back to the very beginning and he talks about one man and one woman being into one flesh, you have to understand that for these Jewish hearers, they're cultural heroes of faith. They're Abraham, they're Moses, they're David, they're Solomon. None of those men actually had that sexual ethic. All of those men had multiple wives. All of those men got to do as they wanted to do. And so for Jesus to bring forward God's intent from the very beginning, once more, let's the disciples see do they understand that all, all will fall short in some way? Keep moving to verse 13. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. And the disciples spoke sternly to them. Do you guys remember just several verses before how Jesus had welcomed the kids in his name? Right? And told them to do it. What are the disciples doing here? They're rebuking these kids. They missed it. Again. Over and over. Missing it. So here is your next fill in the blank. Strength of understanding does not guarantee commitment to obedience. You can hear all of these things in the scripture be very straightforward, but it doesn't mean that you're going to decide to be obedient to those things. We see the disciples miss it again. 
And so in this very next section, we have a rich man coming up to Jesus, kneeling before him and asking him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus asked him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. And he lists out part of the Ten Commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. And then this young man said to him, Teacher, I have kept all of these since my youth. In other words, I've been obedient to these things. I've done it. I've somehow managed to do it. And Jesus, in verse 21, looking at him, loved him. And it's a pretty remarkable thing. And we tend to just run past this, this part to, to see what Jesus says to him next. He loved him and said, you lack one thing, go sell what you own and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving for he had many possessions. And when's the last time you read this section of scripture and you felt convicted about how you looked or thought or worried about wealth or finances or money. I mean, it's probably not a section that many of us want to read because we wonder, well, is Jesus saying that I need to get rid of everything and just leave it all and then follow him and search after him? Again, see the beauty of Jesus looking at this young man and loving him. In the Greek there, the love there is the unconditional love. It's the love that says, regardless of what you decide to do after this point, it's already there. It's already secure. And so if you continue in this text, the disciples are so confused about why Jesus would send away this rich person, why Jesus would welcome kids instead. And so Peter speaks out, who then can be saved? The disciples are saying, who can be saved? Peter says, we've left everything to follow you. And you remember Jesus' words? With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We're almost done here. Verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. And it's this third and final time that Jesus tells the disciples that he is going to be killed and crucified, and on the third day, rise again. And what do the disciples do after that? They totally get it, right? They finally understand. Third time's a charm. No. James and John, two of the brothers, I mean, it's just, it's dumbfounding. They immediately ask Jesus if they can sit alongside his right and his left in those positions of power and authority. It's like, how did they miss it? How did they miss this? How did they miss that Jesus is ultimately going to remind them again that if they want 
to become great. They must be the servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. And in verse 45, one of the most famous verses of this gospel in our scripture, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here's your second and the last fill in the blank as we begin to close this up. Commitment to obedience, it's not going to determine the outcome of Christ's endurance. You know, if you travel back through all of these narratives, if you take every single one of these stories and you cross the cultural bridge and you ask yourself how you're doing as a follower of Jesus or how you're doing as a person, you might have to ask yourselves questions like, all right, how am I doing in terms of my ego? How am I doing in terms of being the slave of all? How am I doing in terms of understanding my status or positioning and not jockeying to be the first? How am I doing with whether or not I have an us versus them mentality? How am I doing in regards to whether or not I'm putting a stumbling block before others and them following Jesus? How am I doing in terms of my sexual purity? How am I doing in terms of how I use the scripture to elevate myself over another person? How am I doing in terms of whether or not I'm welcoming the little children? How am I doing in so far as keeping all the commandments or giving all my possessions away or having a perspective of wealth or security or trust in God or how am I doing in terms of being on the same page or aligned with Jesus' sacrificial purposes or how am I doing in so far as wanting to sit at the right or the left of Jesus? Can anyone here keep up with that list of how you're doing as a follower or disciple of Jesus? You know, the best part about all this is Jesus is traveling through and where is he going? He's going to do what he said he's going to do. He's going to do what he said he's going to do. In this very last story, this very last story before Jesus is in Jerusalem, you have the very first time an individual who's going to be healed by Jesus, so not a counterpart, but an individual is actually going to be named. And it's this blind person on the side of the road named Bartimaeus, literally son of Timaeus, and he hears that Jesus is passing by. And he screams out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people tell him to be quiet, and so he screams out all the louder, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops in his tracks, and he calls him to him. And Jesus asks Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Look what Bartimaeus says. My teacher, let me see again. Some of your translations will just say, let me see. But in the Greek, it's, it's let me see again. In other words, there was something in Bartimaeus' life that caused him to lose his eyesight. He could see. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. And that sounds like it should be the end of the story. So here's your very last fill in the blank. Maybe the hardest part about our discipleship is the tension to quietly lose sight of ourselves. 
Immediately he regained his sight. The second part of verse 52. And what did Bartimaeus do? Followed him on the way. I'd like to invite up our worship team. And as they're coming up, and we see these final words, this final instance before Jesus gets to Jerusalem. I'd like you to take note of the fact that in every single healing story in Mark's gospel before this point, the individual who's healed is sent away for some reason. Told not to share about who Jesus is or just goes off because they're excited about what happens. And this is the one time in Mark's gospel, and it's not unintentional that it happens right before Jerusalem. It's the one time that an individual quietly decides to go against this sending off and instead choose to what? To follow. You see, it's a play on words here that we would say that perhaps the hardest part for us is to quietly lose sight of ourselves. And the reason why I'm saying that is because if we've walked with Jesus for any amount of time, more than likely the temptation for us is going to be we want to find ways to essentially communicate that we're doing this pretty well. Why? Because us doing it well feels like we're living up to Jesus' sacrifice. It feels like our commitment to him is matching his endurance and his intensity. And even though length of discipleship and strength of understanding and commitment to obedience, all of those things are important, even though following him with our thoughts and our behaviors and our lives is truly a witness to this world, there's perhaps not a greater witness for us to this world than to say, in spite of my failings and in spite of my inability to do all of these things the way that it's presented to me, actually, it's not about me. It's not about my ability to uphold all that stuff. It's not about whether or not my performance translates to, to Jesus' purposes. No, his purpose to give of himself, to be a ransom. To be the reason why I could be forgiven and put in the right relationship with God. That's what matters. And so this week as we go out from this place, I'd like to challenge myself and I'd like to challenge you. Whenever you or I start feeling pretty good about ourselves because of what we think we've done as solid followers or disciples of Jesus, would we remember that that's not why he went to Calvary? He moved in that direction because he knew that we needed him to. And let's rejoice and respond to him in that way. Let's pray. God. We miss your intent and your purpose all the time. And God, it's so easy to read scripture, twist scripture, not be confronted enough by it. But God, would you not just use your word to convict us of our shortcoming? 
God, would you use your word to convict us of our dependence on you, our need for you, our trust in you. And God, would you help us in new ways, commit to following after you again quietly, not in a way that we get to proclaim to the world all that we've done, but God, in a way that says we're grateful for what you've done through your son, Jesus. We love you. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.